Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 184 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Gracefully Fed, an interview with Tracy Weintraub. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is one of the really cool superhero stories of a woman who went on this horrific Lyme disease journey, but learned lessons from that experience. And she's now converted all that she's learned into a really cool nutrition slash soup business. And Rich, among the things that we learned from Tracy is not all Lyme litter doctors are the same. We always hear people say, I have to find a Lyme specialist, but we learned from Tracy that you have to be careful when picking your doctor. We also learned what specifically worked for Tracy and what didn't among a wide variety of treatment protocols that she tried. We also learned that not all herbal protocols are the same as well. And Tracy also talked to us about PTSD and the importance of overcoming that to heal from Lyme and get into remission and specifically what she did to get there. Matt, this is another one of these really cool transformational stories where we have a woman who went on a journey that opened her eyes to a new set of talents that she had. And although she's still an entertainment professional, she's also now a nutritional professional who's now helping out people with Lyme disease and people with chronic illness. So without further ado, Gracefully Fed with Tracy Weintraub. Hey, Tracy, and welcome to the podcast. Hi. We are really excited to have you and so just so we can give a context for you, for our, our community, uh, where are you calling in from? I'm, I'm in West Hollywood currently. What is it like to live in West Hollywood, Tracy? I love it. I mean, I've been out here for a really long time. I love it. Um, I'm from New York, so I moved out here right after college and the weather gets you. It's like hard to go home um, because the weather really gets you here. It's so warm and nice and I love it. I can't complain. So I understand that you are a fellow New Yorker, at least uh, you were born and bred in New York. I was. I was. I grew up in Long Island. Um, yeah, I grew up in Long Island and then I moved out here. I think I was like 22-ish. I actually tried moving back to New York uh, for two years. I moved back to New York in my 30s and um, I got really cold and I had to move back to L.A. <laughs> okay. um, well, let's, let's talk about what it was like to live in the cold on Long Island during your youth. What was your experience like and, um, and what was your educational experience like? Um, well, I grew up in Long Island. I feel like I, I, like I actually just had this conversation with my dad. I liked growing up where I grew up, you know, back when I grew up, everyone played outside. There was a cul-de-sac, you know, like we were always outdoors. Everybody was, you know, just playing baseball. Like it was just such a great way to grow up. You know, like you rode your bikes, you did all that stuff. I, I feel like with the kids today, like that doesn't happen. I don't know if it's because I'm in LA and I don't see like that happening all the time. But um, I loved growing up in Long Island. It You feel safe. You know, like I, I felt I, I grew up in a very, um, I grew up in an environment where you just felt safe, you know, and I am blessed for that. So I'm always grateful for that as well. I grew up in a great neighborhood. All the kids played outside couldn't complain, you know? Well, did part of feeling safe growing up on Long Island include having some awareness of ticks and, and Lyme disease? Um, you know, you're aware of it. Like, you know, we would go on, I remember going on a school trip to like Comset, which is funny. Cause like, I used to take walks up over there with my sister when I was like older, like, but going to Comset, you always had to like put your socks over your pants and they talked to you about ticks. Um, but like, you know, now I'm like cautious on walking on grass, but growing up, like you just ran around in the grass barefoot. You just didn't care. So like, it, you know, you were aware of it, but like, not really, it wasn't as like, for me, at least 
it wasn't like as prevalent as it is for me right now, where I like see my nephews in the grass. I'm like, oh my God, do they have bug spray on? And my sister's always like, yes, yes. But um, yeah, like, I I don't know. I Maybe it was like a different time and it w- wasn't as bad. I don't know. But like, we knew about it going into wooded areas, not so much playing in your backyard. So you were generally aware of ticks and tick diseases, but you really weren't engaging in any regular practices of either preventing yourself from coming in contact with ticks or checking yourself to determine if you had ticks on you. Yeah, I feel like my mom did, but like, you know, you're, you know, like if she's like kind of checking you for stuff, like you're just like trying to, you're antsy and you're trying to like keep moving, keep playing. Um, But yes, there's a general awareness, but nothing where, nothing where it was like, you know, you have to put on bug spray before you go outside. Like, yeah, I don't remember that. Maybe, you know, it was like more suntan lotion. That was more important. Now, Tracy, we have some of the best school districts in the country on Long Island. We certainly pay our teachers better than just about anyone else. So I'm assuming you had a good primary education. Did you, during the course of the time, and this is pre-college now, uh, during the course of the time that you were a student in one of Long Island's top school districts, did you learn anything about ticks or tick diseases in your health classes or anywhere else? No, I don't remember. I, I, I could honestly say I don't remember having an education about um, tick-borne diseases or Lyme disease or anything like that, like in high school. I don't like uh, we might have, but I I have no memory of it. To be honest, so certainly you certainly didn't learn enough about it for it to stay with you so that you would have tools to protect yourself from coming in contact with ticks or Lyme disease. Exactly. Like there's no, the, again, like the only thing that I remembered was that trip to Comset and it was a wooded area. So you, you associate one with the other, like, okay, well, this is the only place that you could get ticks is on this field trip. This one, you know, that everybody goes on every year. That right. was it. Yeah. As, as opposed to what the what the data shows is that a majority of people who suffer from Lyme disease, actually over 75 percent, actually come in contact with ticks in their own yard, as opposed to going out on the hike or the trip where we are taking the precautions. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's now now that I know, like me and my dad always have this saying, like, if you know, you know, if you don't, you don't, you know. And now that I know it's like I don't go I, I go hiking um, for example, here in LA and it's, when I say hiking, it's very trendy. There's pavement, like, you know, everybody's dressed up and like, it's more people watching and I'm putting bug spray on and I have friends looking at me like, come on, let's go, let's go. But I'm like, I, I like, I can't not, you know? So people don't realize, you know, I, I think there's still not enough education about it. So Tracy, you had this very safe, healthy Long Island experience, and then you went on to college. Where did you go to school and what did you major in? I went to the University of Michigan, and I ended up majoring in film and TV after like switching my major like a few times. Um, but I ended up uh, taking a TV course that I like absolutely loved, and that's kind of where I stayed in, and I, I loved uh, film and TV. I actually went to Michigan because I wanted to be in their theater program, and I got rejected twice. And then like, you know, I, I found out I wasn't a good actress. It was really heartbreaking. It was like, shoot. So now when you, uh, now, of course, Michigan and the University of Mich- Michigan is located in a tick endemic community. Were there any warnings when you went to that great school? I mean, it's one of the top schools in the Midwest. Uh, did, you, did you have any warnings given to you about ticks and tick diseases when you're in college? No, no, not at all. Like, you know, there's, there's no warning about that. 
more concerned about the football games and, you know, where you're going to go drinking on a Friday. It had, you have no, there, there's no conversation about the only, honestly, at that point, the only thing that I knew about Lyme disease or tick-borne disease was from an episode of the real world. That was it. That was it. Like I knew nothing else. Well, talk um, to us about that. What was, what was the episode and what did you learn about Lyme disease at that time? I remember that, I mean, this is true story. I didn't, that's actually funny that I just said that, but the, um, there was a girl, I think it was the Seattle, uh, the Seattle, um, season. I want to say it was Seattle. She had Lyme disease and then she got slapped by one of her, like one of her roommates or whatever. But I remember she kept talking about Lyme disease and she kept saying like that she didn't feel good. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this girl's like, like over-dramatizing something. Like I remember thinking, that it wasn't as big of a deal as she was making it. And it, it annoyed me. And that, and like now looking back, I'm like, yikes, because she actually <laughs> was really vocal about it and, you know, was talking about it on TV and nobody, like there's how many people like me now, like, it, you know, back then it was just like, what is she doing? It's like, oh my God, you're so over dramatic. get over it. Which is what I've heard a thousand times about this disease. So yeah. So today you're feeling convicted about the way you were feeling back then. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever admitted that to anybody, um, but that's, that's, you know, true. You know, I remember thinking that watching that real world. So you're in college, you're dreaming about first becoming an actress. And after you discover that your aptitude is really not in acting, you, uh, you then pivot over to a new, uh, new pursuit in the entertainment career. So in, I should say in the entertainment community. So talk to us about, um, what you were dreaming about and what you were working toward at, at that stage in your life. I wanted to, I saw a, um, I saw this director, he came to lecture us. His name was John Rich and he was an, um, he was an alum, Michigan alum and he directed things like All in the Family and he talked about directing. And I, I loved that lecture so much. And from that lecture on, I said, I want to direct television. That was it. And so that was where my mindset was. Like, I always had like, oh, maybe I'll act here and there. Like, even when I moved out to LA after college, I'm like, I still acted. I got an agent. I went on auditions, but like my whole focus was I'm going to direct television. I actually remember saying, I'm going to direct television by the time I'm 24. I'm 40. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, <laughs> but I remember that was my main goal. And, um, I had, you know, I have a career in TV that I love. So, you kind of, I kind of went down that path and I was able, like, you know, out of college, I worked for a director for eight years and um, he always said, if you want to direct, do it yourself. And so I started directing my own shows and things like that. But that in college, when I saw that lecture, I saw this man talk. Um, I was like, that's what I want to do. So you decided you were going to do that. You graduate from this great school in the Midwest and you now move out to Los Angeles or to uh, West Hollywood. Is that where you moved out to? Yes. So what was that experience like now that you're living the um, living the dream of living on the West Coast? Uh, talk to us about what that experience was like. Um, it was hard. I mean, I was very far away from my family, even though I had gone to uh, Michigan and I was my family's in New York. You could drive home if you really wanted to or take like an hour flight. Um, I was you know, away from my family um, and I started working at a talent agency and everything that you see on um, what's that movie? The Devil Wears Prada for me was true. 
Like my dad, I remember my parents seeing that movie and being like, Oh my God, that's like you, because I worked at a talent agency and um, my life was my bosses. You worked long hours. You were kind of verbally abused here and there, but like, you're like, this is great. Like, I just want to, you know, you wanted to, and I kept saying, I want to direct, I want to direct, I want to direct. And they ultimately, I worked for them for a year, um, put me in touch with a director that I would end up working with for eight years. So it was hard, but ultimately you're like, oh my God, like I'm in LA and I'm in the industry and I'm working with all these famous people. And it, you know, it's really exciting and enticing and yeah, I, I loved it. And you learn the business like inside out, which you think, you know, because you watch TV, but you don't. And that was so cool to me. I loved it. So now, of course, you're on the West Coast and I guess you're you're uh, of the mindset that there's no Lyme disease in California, because that's certainly what we're, we're told. Um, did did uh, you learn anything new about ticks or Lyme disease when you moved out to California or during that sort of eight year window in your life where you're now uh, living the West Coast uh, industry dream? Nothing. I it never it never um, it never played a role in my life at all. Like I never thought about it. I never, you know, if I was going on a hike or if I was outside, like it just never crossed my mind ever. So talk to us about when your Lyme disease symptoms began to present. So I was about 30, 31, I think. And I actually moved back to New York. Um, I moved back to New York. I was just, I just finished working on the big bang theory and I wanted to be closer. My nephews were little. I'm like, I'm going to move back to New York. So I moved to New York and I had like, I lived in New York for two years and it's, and I was like depressed. I was, and I'm normally, if I'm a depressed person, like I could figure out a way to get out of it. And I couldn't. And I remember like getting really bad migraines. And I went to a headache specialist who said, yes, I took a scan. Um, and you know, back then, or a lot of people still now, when a doctor says you have migraines, you, you don't look at your records. You don't look at like your blood tests. You don't look at the scan. You just say, oh, okay, like that's what it is. She's telling me whatever the reason I'm saying this, I'll come back to it. But I got a scan. She said, you have migraines, take medicines. I'm like, all right. Um, my legs were really, really heavy. And I was walking around the city being like, God, this is so weird. Like, did I just get used to like driving in LA? Like, you know, like, am I not used to walking? I would be, well, I would try to, I would just ran a half marathon in LA and I came and I was running in central park and I'm like, Oh my God, my legs felt like cement. And so I kept blowing it off. And I was saying, well, I'm getting older. I'm in my thirties. Like that's what I kept saying. <laughs> so, and I was severely depressed and I thought, well, it's because I moved to New York and my life was in LA. I missed, I couldn't get a job. Um, in New York. And I'm like, I just came off the big bang three. Like, why can't I get a job? Like, this is crazy in TV and whatever. And I ultimately ended up working on a, on a show in TV, but it's almost like I had to start over. And I was like, just not in a, in a happy place. I was having all these weird symptoms. My stomach started bothering me cut to, I got a call from a producer to fly back to LA and they're like, we need a switcher. It's what I am. I'm a, a video switcher can you come back? Like, what would it, do, what would, what would we have to do to get you back? I'm like, nothing. Get on a plane to move back to LA after two years of being in New York. And as soon as I land, I start feeling like really weird, like almost um, panicky. Like, and I start having these symptoms 
And I'm like calling my dad for two weeks. I'm going to the doctor and I'm like, something's not right. Something is, it's almost felt like I was drunk, you know, like where you just were laying out in the sun, you had too many pina coladas. That's what it felt like. And like, every time I stood, I was like, (gasps) like, I didn't know what was going on. And I booked, so I was going to the doctor like every day for two weeks. And I actually had booked a flight back to New York for my nephew's birthday. And my friend here in LA said, why don't you get a second opinion? Cause my doctor was like, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And I went and got a second opinion at an urgent care. And the urgent care doctor said to me, you have something called postural orthostatic tachycardia. Don't Google it. Don't scare yourself. Just make an appointment with a cardiologist, which to a healthy 31 year old person who runs every day is like the scariest thing that you could say. So I called my dad and I said, you know, I have this thing called postural, postural orthostatic tachycardia. And he wants me to see a cardiologist. And sure enough, you know, my parents are looking for somebody who specializes in that and they find one. Cause I was, you know, going back to New York. So I remember calling my father on the flight before that and saying, I don't know if I could get on the flight. I just felt like something was wrong. Like, you know, you, where you feel like, I don't know if I, I don't know if I could function or I'm going to collapse. I, and he's like, if you don't get on the flight, we'll come to you. It's fine. But if you get on the flight, I'm going to pick you up at the airport and we'll figure this out. I get on the flight, go to New York. I go to my nephew's birthday. There's like a lot of people around and like, I'm not an anxious person ever, like, especially around a lot of people. I love that. I love being around a lot of people, but I was like, it was like, felt like it was a closing in on me. I'm like, I pulled my father outside. I go, something is wrong. Pop. I'm like, something is wrong. He's like, okay, we'll go to your sisters. We'll open gifts. You'll lay down like whatever. We go to my sisters. I'm like sitting there and I'm like, nope. And I looked at my dad. I'm like, you got to take me to the hospital. I'm, I'm like getting emotional. And, and he's like, okay. So we get in the car and I'm sitting in the front seat. My father's in driving and we're near my sister's in Huntington. So he doesn't know where the hospital, like he can't figure it out. And my, my mom's in the back seat. And when my dad gets nervous, he speaks really loud. So like, he's calling my sister and he's like, where's this hospital? Just tell, you know, like very loud, you know? And I'm like, and I'm looking at my dad. I'm like, dad, I'm like, I can't feel my legs. Like it, all the feeling in my body started just draining out of me. And I could see he's getting nervous. And I'm like looking at my hands. Cause I'm like, pop, I'm like, I can't something's not right. Like I couldn't feel my hands and I, you know, I'm starting to panic like hard. And, um, I could tell that he's getting nervous, but he's driving and talking loud. So I'm just like, let, let him do his thing. We get to an urgent care. He finds one. I literally open the car door and I collapse. And all I hear is my dad say, forget about your purse. Just get her inside. You know, like she, and my mom is hysterical crying. She's carrying me into the And I, when I'm like coming to, I'm convulsing, like severe convulsing. And I like look up and like the doctor's like jumping. It was so dramatic. Like you couldn't write it any better. You know, like it was so dramatic. And I said to the doctor, I'll never forget it. I said, did I do this? Like, is my job too stressful? Like, you know, like maybe I did this. Like, do I have anxiety? And he was like, like, what do you do? And I I was telling him, he's like, no, he's like, it's not you. So from, from that collapse, my dad's like, you're staying in New York. We're getting you tested. So we went to a neural, like a, uh, we went to a thousand doctors, but we went to that cardiologist. We went to a neuro neurologist. I just kept seeing doctors and doctors and what they, at that time, they diagnosed me with POTS. So you, you're put on Medodrine, you're put on 
salt tabs, you're doing all these things, but I still wasn't diagnosed with Lyme disease. So anything that I was feeling in the seven months up until my diagnosis with, with Lyme disease was put under, oh, it's just pots, it's pots, it's pots. And I'm, I came back to LA and I bought the compression socks. I took the metodrine, which I hated. Um, I did the salt tabs, but I was having so many symptoms, like so many other symptoms. But the goal was don't collapse. It was like, you know, do everything so you don't collapse. Um, and then like just everything started from there. I was like, I was having trouble walking. I was having tremors in my hands and my feet. I was stuttering. I couldn't remember things. Like I would walk into a room and you, I'm sure you guys have heard this a thousand times where you're like, what am I doing here? Um, and I still had to work in TV 14 hour days. So it was crazy. And I, and I kept saying something else is like wrong. So I kept seeing different doctors, different specialists, and everybody had something or like putting me on something. And then ultimately, um, I was, everything happens in New York. I'm not even kidding. So I flew back to New York and I went to go visit, um, my friends. I worked at a show called last week tonight with John Oliver. And I went to go visit my friends there. We went to go like to my little favorite coffee shop on, on the corner on the West side. And I had a cookie with nuts in it and I have a severe allergic reaction. I've never been allergic to anything. And I run to urgent care and she was like, if it gets any worse, you have to go to the hospital. But it like, it was all over. Like I had hives everywhere. I'm like, oh my God, like I've never been allergic to anything. So I don't know what that means. So two days later, I'm in New York. I put face cream on. It has almond oil in it. I don't know. And I have facial paralysis down and my left arm just stopped moving. And I call my sister and I'm like, I think you need to take me to the hospital. And sure enough, I went to the hospital and I was fully allergic to um, nuts. I became allergic to seeds, nuts, all stuff because I went to an allergist after that. But my sister said when we were in the hospital, she's like, you should go see one of those doctors, like that house doctor on TV, like he, you know, where he figures out like the problem. And I found one of those. I found an integrative gastroenterologist and on his website, it says he gets to the root of the problem. And when I came back to LA, he was my first appointment. And the first thing he said to me was, I think you have Lyme disease. And I said, no, I've been tested. And he said, let me test you. And sure enough, I had Lyme disease. So let me walk you back to when you <laughs> first started your symptoms. Yeah. Um, now that you have you know, some, an opportunity to look back, do you believe that you were bitten by a tick in LA, do you believe you were bitten by a tick in New York after you had arrived back? Or do you believe that you were harboring the Lyme disease and you had a stressful moment in your life that then compromised your immune system or disrupted your immune system? And that's why you started showing symptoms when you did. We, you know, I, I talk about this with uh, my family a lot. Um, I think that I had it. I think I got it in LA and I came to New York and had it. Like, I don't think I got it in New York. I don't think it was, cause if I had gotten, it was too immediate. You know, my symptoms had like, they were there. Like when I was, when I got to New York, I think I had it. Could it have been something I had growing up and it just never, I, yes. Like I think about that all the time. When I moved to New York, I went through a few major things. One, I had just run a half marathon that could put your body into such stress that could cause like it could cause all the symptoms. 
I had just it, lost- Immune disruption, right? I mean, you, you stressed your body so much physically that it was a, an immune disrupting event. And I remember running, like I would run 10 miles a day and I'd always, I always, I, there was a joke, my friend, my friend who actually passed away because that could have been a trigger. He passed away. I ran a marathon for him. Like I was doing it for him and charity. And I was having struggle kind of coping with his passing. And the joke was, he goes, you could run a marathon for me if you want, but you run so slow. And so when I was running 10 miles every day, I'd always think, oh my God, I run so slow because like I always said, my legs were so heavy. Like I always said, if I had skinnier legs, maybe I would run faster, but we always joked about that. Like I, I'm a slow runner. How are you going to finish this marathon? I'm like, I don't know. And so it, it was all around the same time. I lost a friend. I um, had the marathon and I had just had I broken up with the guy that I was seeing and that was a bit heavy for me as well. And those are traumatic events that could trigger stress. It could strip, you know, trigger anything in your body, cause the disruption of immune system. So I think that I had it. I probably grew up with it maybe, or I got it in LA and it just kind of came out and was like, here I am. You're welcome. (laughs) You know? So I don't know. So you, you return to Long Island, you have all of these symptoms, and now, um, now you are, uh, you're on this journey for seven months until you finally f- find the uh, gastroenterologist, Dr. House, who diagnoses you. Yes. Talk to us before, um, before we get into Dr. House, um, let's, let's talk about how the seven months was impacting your life, meaning what impact was the developing symptoms having on you socially and what impact were these developing uh, symptoms having on you professionally? Oh my God. Um, so, you know, you're going through, you're kind of discovering all these things like that are happening and like you're kind of hyper aware now. So like things that I would blow off like the tremors or, you know, um, stuttering or like, you know, not being able to formulate words like where you were you used to laugh at, like, you're just like, oh my God, that actually is an issue. Um, and then pain, I just thought I, I used to work out all of the time. So like, I always thought maybe I was just, you know, sore from working out, but it was, I wasn't working out and I was still in a lot of pain. Um, and, um, socially it affected me because I felt like a burden on a lot of my friends. I was reaching out, I was asking for help and you find very quickly who's your friend and who doesn't want to be your friend you know, you create family in LA. Like when you, when you move out here, you create family because your family is so far away. But my family, it felt like my system was breaking down. I was very social. I went out all the time. I had, I would thought I was well-liked and that I, I became very isolated, you know, and the people that stuck around have still stuck around, you know, you know, my grandmother always said this, she goes, you only need one good friend. She always said that to me. She's like, you don't need a big bunch of people. You don't need a lot of friends. You need one. And I have a handful. Um, But I remember being very social and that dwindled down. Even like dating and things like that, you you are nervous to go out. You're nervous to do all. But work was the biggest thing for me because work was my life. I moved out here. I worked on two television shows. I didn't tell them I was sick. I didn't tell them that I could collapse at any time. One of the shows I worked on, um, it was called Mike and Molly. And um, I always felt safe there. You know, I use that word a lot because when you feel that way, you could get through your day. And so if I could just walk, so from the parking lot to the stage, what is like a five minute walk would take me 30 to 40 minutes because my legs were just were not 
they were not moving. And also I was afraid I was gonna collapse. And I, to get to my booth on set, you have to walk upstairs. And I, I work with like a bunch of sound guys, like on every show that I've ever worked on, you work with like kind of the same sound guys here and there. And Mike and Molly, those guys knew something was wrong, never said anything and literally always had my back. So I would take naps on their couches or like I would lay underneath my desk and then they would just be like, Trace, if you're up, you know, like if it was rehearsal or whatever, they literally knew something was up, never said anything, but always looked out for me. You know, it was, it's safety. And then the AD team, there was a, a, a few women that worked. I called the producer who I was friends with at the time. And I said, something's up. I knew I was going to collapse. Like I knew that, like I was having that feeling again. And it was the end of the night. And she's like, oh my God, I'm already home. Call Rianne. And we didn't tell anybody. I didn't want to lose my job. You know, I was freelancing and to tell anybody that you're sick and unreliable in TV, you lose your job. You lose your call back for another show. So I was trying not to tell like the producers, but one of the producers I was friends with, and she's like, call the, the AD Rhiannon, you know, she's like, she'll be fine. Just tell her. So I called my friend Rhiannon and I was like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to collapse. And no joke. She came upstairs. She carried me downstairs. We sat in the bathroom, the medic came the other first AD and we made a pact that we wouldn't tell anybody because that's what you're, you're so nervous about losing your insurance, even though nobody takes insurance when you have Lyme disease, but like, you're so nervous of losing that or losing your days. Cause like for me to be in my union, you need a certain amount of days to work or you don't get your insurance. So they just kept it a secret for me and always looked out for me. So I felt really safe on that show. The second show that I worked on again, I don't want to, I don't want to tell anybody what this show is. I really wasn't well. It was longer hours. We did 14 full hours. Um, the set, nobody knew. I wasn't really close with anyone like I was on Mike and Molly. And I ultimately collapsed and they had a, I had a, so one of the PAs drove me home. And then I ultimately was fired from that show, the, the set, the next season. And they don't, they never blame it on that. They never said that. They said that they always wanted to work with this one person. I'm like, you never even knew he was a switcher, but like, I knew why they let me go. Um, so that was upsetting to me. You know, that was always like, really like, whoa. So professionally, you're just like, all right, who do I want to tell and who, who do I not tell? And for the most part, I kept it to myself, you know. Tracy, do you believe that all of that fear and worry about somebody finding out and losing your job and losing your insurance and losing your union rights was contributing to your decline in your health and making you get sicker quicker? Yeah, I think that without a doubt, like you, you learn firsthand, you know, people don't realize this. So especially when they get sick and they're diagnosed with Lyme disease, they don't realize that when you actually have to find a Lyme doctor and you actually have to get taken care of, those people don't take insurance and you're filling out um, claim forms and doing things that you've never thought you had to do because generally you would always go to a doctor. They said, here's take some medicine and then you're fine. But now, you know, your appointments are costing $350. You're trying to get it reimbursed by your insurance. It's so much pressure and it's so much paperwork for somebody who is so sick and can barely like function or like make words together. So you're doing all of this like work that you never thought you had to do because you thought, you know, you have insurance and you have, you know, somebody has your back and now you're the only person who has your back and you literally are fighting every time you go to the doctor. So it's so much more stress 
than just having, you know, a cold and, you know, getting medication. And, um, I didn't realize that, but like I, my files from that year, that first two years are ex extensive, like, and it, it was so much stress because I didn't realize what I, I, you just don't realize what you are getting yourself into when you finally are like, okay, I have Lyme disease and I'm sick, but that comes with so much paperwork. So, so Tracy, I want to go back to the social component because we actually had a discussion about this recently with, with a couple of other Lyme warriors. When you first got sick, were there friends that you had that sort of didn't know how to really be friends with you anymore because you were sick and that they distanced themselves from you and you didn't know how to respond to that? Yeah, I had a group of friends who essentially stopped asking me to hang out and they were friends. I would hang out with them every weekend and they stopped inviting me places. And so I would approach them and be like, did I say something? Like, did I offend you? Am I too much of a bird? Like I kept putting it on me. You know, maybe I'm this way. Like I had no, I, I had no, nobody told me what I was doing wrong. And ultimately I think it was, you know, me getting sick or I have no idea. I had, but at the time it, it hurt me so much um, that now when I look back, I'm like, it was almost a blessing in disguise because you really don't need friends like that. You don't need friends who kind of just like walk out of your life and, and don't give you any sort of justification or explanation. Um, and I think that if they were in my shoes and they had gone through something that I had went through, I would never treat anybody. Even if they came to me now, I would never treat them the way that they treated me. You know, Tracy, with those friends, do you think it was more that they knew you were sick, but they couldn't have fun with you anymore? So instead of saying, how can we help you while you're sick? They just sort of walked away. Do you think that's the part that makes you so uh, have those such hard feelings towards those, those groups of people? I think some of them like wanted to help. Um, and some of them, I think some of them wanted to help. And then some of them were like, what are you doing? Like, it's, it's too much of your time. Like, you know, stop. So for, for, for those people, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I can't say, cause I don't know. I never had a, a, like an actually open conversation with any of them or what happened. I tried. Um, but then ultimately like the people that stuck with me, I've had, I have a friend who's been my friend through all of this. She's been one of my closest friends for 20 years. The first thing she said to me, like, cause I was telling her about Lyme disease and I was, you know, woe is me kind of thing. Cause I, it was like a severe situation. And I felt like no one understood it. She said to me, you know, Tracy, is it, it's not cancer. Uh, and it, it stung so much. Like, cause it's, you're just like, I'm not comparing myself. You, you know, you're like, I'm not comparing myself to anyone with cancer, but I also was like, but I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. Like you, you want to be like, I'm, you, you want to scream and be like, I'm so sick, but then you also don't want to be like, oh my God, I'm not comparing, you know, you, it's such a weird thing, but she's seen me through it. And she actually has said to me like many years after making that comment, like I had no idea, you know? And so she stuck around and those are the kinds of friends that are worth talking about. You know? Tracy, I think that that's really powerful because we've had other people that have had similar situations where friends have made statements not intending to hurt the person who is sick or the Lyme warrior, and they have. And then those other guests have then sort of cut them out of their lives. So for you, do you think it was worth it to sort of explain to this friend who still sounds like one of your best friends to explain to her why that was hurtful and then to grow through that together to grow your friendship? You know, again, it comes back to that saying, if you if you don't know, then you don't know, you know, kind of thing, because I don't think she realized, I think she still 
I think she still thought I was being a little bit overdramatic and things like that until um, her daughter got sick and she was having issues and they couldn't figure out why. And she kept going to doctor on doctors and like, and then it, she finally said like, I like she, she's like, I can't believe you've been going through this, this whole time, you know? And I don't think she would have realized it until that happened. And like, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, but unfortunately that's basically what happened. And there was nothing that I could have said or preached, you know, like, I don't like to preach. I don't like to say, no, hear me. Like, you know, whatever, if you, if you don't want to, if you don't want to know, you don't want to know, like, it's not, it's not worth it. Like, I am happy to talk about Lyme disease. I'm happy to talk about my journey. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, but if you don't want to hear it and I'm getting that pushback, then I walk away. Cause you know, cause they're the first person who will come to me and be like, Oh my God, my dad has Lyme disease. What do I do? And I'll be the first person to be like, let's have a conversation. So so let's go back to your Dr. House experience, because before that, you mentioned that he, you were tested for Lyme and it came back negative. Did those doctors that tested you before this, this Dr. House, did they ever tell you that these, these Lyme tests were not accurate and you could possibly still have Lyme disease? No. So I, I you know, when I developed POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia, I um, got a concierge doctor. Cause like I, we wanted a doctor that I could see whenever and like go in and like, it wasn't like kind of brushing me aside. So I went and I spent money and did a concierge doctor and he tested me the ELISA test. I didn't have, I didn't have it, but this was like my third ELISA test that I had tested negative. When I did the Igenix test through the house doctor, I not only tested positive for Lyme, but Babesia, Bartonella, like all of the co-infections, like I had everything. And I didn't understand what that meant. Um, I ended up, at, like, I, I also um, bought a lot of books and I started highlighting, I was like in school again, just like highlighting and like trying to educate myself. Um, I went back to the concierge doctor and I showed him the Igenix test and the bands and all that stuff. I'm like, and he was like, no, this is, this is, he told me it was a phony test and that I wasted my money. And then he said, when was the last time you were in Connecticut? And it blew my mind. Like he actually asked, when was the last time you were in Connecticut? I thought that was such an like ignorant thing to say. And it was the last time I saw him. So this doctor thought it was possible you had Lyme and ran three, three ELISA tests. But then when you had a positive hygienics test said, oh, you can only get Lyme in, in Connecticut. So you don't have Lyme disease. Right. So wh where is that disconnect where earlier on, he was testing you with the ELISA test, hoping that maybe you have Lyme and that's something they can work with. And now that you have a positive hygienics test, he's dismissing it. Why do you think there's that conflict there with, with that approach? At the time, I thought this guy was like too old to like educate himself more. Like he just like literally, you know, he's done with his career. He did his education. He hasn't like re-upped it. You know what I mean? Like he stopped, he stopped like learning about things. I think what we all can do, especially I don't know if this is the case with every doctor. I don't want to, I don't want to generalize, but I think that you have this amazing education. You learn all this stuff, but there's still room to educate yourself always. And I think maybe doctors become desensitized. They see too many patients. Um, they're, they're not, they're not as well equipped as they can be because it's just too much. You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. But what's sort of mind blowing is that you were not getting better. You were on all this medication for POTS. You were having symptoms that weren't even POTS symptoms, yet he dismissed Lyme disease so quickly when you had a positive hygienics test, when you went back to your doctor in New York, where Lyme is so prevalent. Right. 
Yeah. So at that point, did you go back to the doctor house to get the proper treatment since this concierge doctor blew you off and dismissed your hygienic testing? No, I went to him. I mean, at that point, because he's a gastroenterologist, I was having so many digestive issues, um, you know, because with Lyme, you have everything like you're so sick with everything. So he was treating me for that stuff, but he recommended a few um, Lyme literate doctors out in L.A., Um, and then there was one Lyme literate doctor that flew to LA, but also, um, is in New York. And my parents at the time had a a house upstate in Rhinebeck. So, um, and he, he is out there. So he gave me all these doctors. I went to one, the first one, and she gave me so many medications. Didn't tell me to titrate. It was very condescending. Um, I took all those medications and I'm talking like Alinea, Mepron, Amoxicillin all at once. I didn't, I didn't know what a Herx was. I didn't read my Dr. Horowitz book yet. Like I didn't know anything. And I ended up in the hospital and I called her and she was like very dismissive of me. And so I called the house doctor who literally taught every time I've been in the hospital, he always talks to the ER doctor for me. And he's always, he's very, he's been a calming presence in my life. So I stopped seeing her. I went to another Lyme literate doctor and I saw him for a few years. I did a lot of IVs with him and different treatments, but I wasn't getting better. So I made an appointment with that Rhinebeck doctor. Um, But at at that time I thought, okay, well, I'm seeing somebody, I'm just going to cancel that Rhinebeck doctor. It's just like too many doctors. I've already seen a hundred doctors. So I called to cancel and they're like, we're still going to have to charge you. And I'm like, all right, I'll go. I was, I was so sick and I still went to him and he's what changed the path in my Lyme journey. Um, and I ultimately, he's the only Lyme literate doctor I see now. And by chance, I didn't cancel the appointment. I went and he is the reason I think I started on a, like a, a good trajectory. Tracy, can you say his name again for our listeners one more time? My, my Lyme literate doctor. Yep. The one that you said that you finally found, I think it was Dr. Reinhardt that actually you saw um, and, and helped you significantly. His name is Dr. Bach and he's in Rhinebeck, New York. Oh, Dr. Bach. Thank you. So one, what I find interesting is that your first Lyme literate doctor was, didn't properly educate you, gave you what I'll call treatment overload, which caused a Herx that landed you in the hospital, but yet it was a very popular Lyme doctor. So that's sort of surprising as well. And, but we've heard this in other get from other guests. And I think that possibly these doctors are so overwhelmed treating so many patients that they don't really spend enough time with you to tell you, Hey, look, this is what to expect. Or, Hey, look, maybe we should start slow and work up depending on how sick you are. So what are your thoughts as to why this Lyme specialist treated you so poorly at first? I, everything you just said, I 100% agree with. I think that, you know, I mean, it's, it's twofold. One, again, like I said, you go into a doctor's office and like you are raised to believe that what a doctor says goes, they know they, that's their field. That's their education. Why would you not listen to anything they say? So I went in thinking, well, she, you know, she knows what she's doing. This is a specialist for Lyme disease, but she was, her bedside manner was so poor. And I, you know, I'm a New Yorker and I could read that. I could read the room. And I literally was just like, and even as as sick as I was, and I'm very nice and I'm like, whatever I could read that. Like I I felt it like, Oh, I'm, am I bothering you? Cause like I could walk the fuck out of here. You know, like that's how I felt, excuse my language, but I, um, I felt it. 
but you're so desperate to get better and to get treatment. I, I mean, the house doctor, like he even said to me, cause I, when he diagnosed me with Lyme, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get better. And he was like, you're going to get much worse before you get better. And, and, and that scared me. Cause I'm like, what do you mean? Like, just give me medicine, whatever. So you're so desperate to get better that you're going to take, you're just going to take it. You're going to take her shit. You're going to take whatever she prescribes because you're going to, you want to get better faster than what you're reading online. Cause you're reading terrifying stories. You're reading that people don't get better for years. And you're like, no, no, I'm healthy. I'm going to get better. So I accepted what she said and I got better cut to now my doctor actually will talk to me and listen to me ask, like, it's just like a conversation. And if it goes past 15 minutes, he's not charging me extra for the extra few minutes, which my other LLMD would do. Um, but yeah, I think it's a matter of maybe she's overwhelmed. Maybe there's not enough LLMDs. Maybe there's not enough doctors who are educated in Lyme. And so that there's only a few of them that they have hundreds of patients that are sick now. I don't know. I just know that that experience like was seared into my brain and, you know, it was, it, it was, it was also though, when I, I realized I need to start writing things down. I need to educate myself. I need to get all of my blood tests. I need to get all of my scans. And ironically, and, and this is why I mentioned it. I got my head scans from that New York head specialist I went to who said I had migraines and in that head scan. And this was all like happening because of this first LLMD I, in that head scan, it says, um, white matter, possible Lyme disease. Nobody told me that. I, and I, when I saw that, like I called my parents and I'm like, oh my God, like I, this could have been, I, this is over a year now. We're, we're two years in. Like I could have been treated while I was in New York and nobody said anything. She's like, you have migraines. And so once that LLMD kind of treated me like shit, I was like, no one's going to do that. And I became, this was a, a blessing and a curse. I became so anal. I started making spreadsheets. I started writing everything down. I started reading so much. Like I felt like I was in college again. And like, it was hard because I was sick and I really have to focus. And that was hard for me too. But I, I wasn't going to let anyone take advantage of me anymore. So in a way it was helpful because it forced you to take control and become your own advocate, get all of your records, look at all your records, find out that you had a flag of Lyme disease that your doctor didn't make you aware of the head doctor in the city and now at this point, you, know, you find Dr. Bach. But before we get to Dr. Bach, I want to go back and ask you one more question because we have, we have a lot of guests and, and people that reach out to us on a regular basis who are struggling with their Lyme doctor. They feel that their Lyme doctor doesn't give them enough attention, that they're not, they're not you know, really working with them, that they're getting, they're getting worse. What advice would you give those people? Because you had that same experience. You then had you know, this treatment overload and ended up in the hospital. So looking back, would you have done anything differently? And what advice would you give to people who are in a similar situation today that are listening to this podcast? I just had a conversation and she's such a sweet girl with this 14 year old girl who called me asking me the same thing. Like, what do I do? You know, my doctor talks over me. What, I, what do I do? So I started doing this and it became, it became like a detriment to my health. But like in the, in the beginning, it was necessary. Write everything down. When you're going into a doctor's appointment, write all of your questions down so you don't forget anything. If, you, if they let you record it, record that session so that you could hear what they're saying and you don't have to remember it. You know, people don't do that. Some doctors don't allow it, but if you could record it, it helps. 
my second LLMD before Dr. Bach would talk for hours and just go over his notes. And it was like, almost like he had a thousand notes. He had a thousand notes. And I'm like, I have the notes. This is my, you know, you better. And so, you know, everything you're doing. So I had a spreadsheet of this pill made me feel this way at this time. Like I was so determined to get, and then the, the other thing is I made a spreadsheet of all my blood work. So he would go and talk and talk and talk and then charge me for him talking like, right. So I went in and I had a spreadsheet of all my blood work. So if anything was abnormal, I would highlight it in red. And I had that throughout my entire, and how many blood tests do you take when you're sick? Right. For my, the worst of my disease were four years. I mean, I, I think I have a notebook this big of just spreadsheets of blood work, you know, and I recommend that I recommend tracking everything you take because they will give you thousands of supplements that you do not need. You know, I still take supplements, but I know what works for me and I know what doesn't because I track it. And then when you're going into a doctor, I think it is so imperative to write everything that you need to be written out so that you are heard, that your voice is heard and not theirs. You know, like they might not, they might not know what they're doing 100%, but you know, your body, you know, what's working for you and you know, what's not. You know, I had a doctor say to me, like, you need to take two of those pills, like, because one pill is not going to do anything. And I'm like, no, no, one pill does any, it does. It knocks me out because my body is severely sensitive. So like you have to be, and I'm sure you hear this on this podcast a thousand times. You have to be your best advocate. No one is going to fight for you the way that you fight for yourself and be prepared, be prepared for people to be condescending to you be prepared to feel rejected, be prepared for them to make you feel like you're stupid. I'm not a stupid girl. I'm, I'm well-educated and I educated myself on this disease. So I like when somebody challenges me and maybe that's the New York in me when somebody's like, well, why do you think that? And I'm like, I'll tell you why I have a thousand documents to tell you you're wrong. Either you fix me or you don't. Sorry to interrupt, but Tracy, if somebody is uber sick and they're having severe brain fog and cognitive impairments, what would you recommend for them? It sounds like your family was very supportive as well. So when you were at that point where you couldn't even fight for yourself, did your family step in to help advocate for you, even with these Lyme doctors who weren't really giving you the attention you deserved? Yeah, my parents, I, I was very blessed. My parents were very educated. Um, they they read along with me every book that I read or article. Like my mom was like living on blogs and asking people questions for me. And my dad was like, trying to understand all the blood work, anything that we went through, I was, a lot of people don't have that. And I was very blessed to have support. And if you could find one person who could support you, it makes a world of difference. Like I said to this 14 year old girl, you know, I don't know what to say. Cause like she has parents and like, you know, your parents are listening to the doctor, but I said, if you don't feel like you're being heard, call me, I'll talk to you. So like you guys do this all the time. Like if people want to talk to you, I'm never not going to talk. I'm never not going to be able to help somebody because I had that with my parents. I was lucky. A lot of people don't have that, but they educate my, my mom on many occasion, like in a hospital or at my doctor's office has terms of endearment. You know, that part in the movie where Shirley McLean's like, my daughter's in pain. My, my mom has done that like multiple times. Like she will fight for me. You know, I am very blessed to have that. Um, but if you don't, you have to reach out to this kind of community because we all feel you and we want to help you. Like, and I, I feel that with everyone I speak to in the Lyme community, one of my good friends, I, I've never even met her. We, we connected because of POTS, 
she lives in Delaware. We talk all the time, you know? So it's, you have to have somebody to bounce those things off, especially if you have brain fog. I've been there. Like you can't think, you know? So Trace, let's go now to Dr. Bach. So you finally found Dr. Bach, who it sounds like is the doctor that really worked with you best and helped you get to where you are today. So what treatment did you start off with when you first went Dr. Bach? He recommended UVLRX. He didn't want to step on my other LLMD shoes because I was doing like with my other LLMD because Dr. Bach is also like, I'll work with anyone. He's very like, he'll work with the house doctor, my gastroenterologist. He's very like happy to work with other doctors, which it's something also that if you, you could find, find, because you're going to have multiple doctors, you're going to have cardiologists, you're going to have neurologists, like have them all work together. That's fantastic. So he didn't want to step on my other LLMD's shoes with the treatments that I was already in. I was currently at that time, I think I was doing Byron White's. Um, I switched over from antibiotics to Byron White's and I was doing IVs like um, Gluta and Myers and all that stuff. He suggested I do UVLRX. Um, which is like light therapy, you know? So you would go in, I would do, I think it's like an hour of um, intravenous light therapy. And then I would do my other pushes or um, drips. Um, But it was like the first time where I was like, oh my God, like I I started to have energy. You know, I had tried ozone. I had tried, um, oh my God, I've tried everything. (laughs) Um, did Did ozone help you? Is that something in your journey was helpful? No, ozone never worked for me. Um, you know, you, it just, it really never worked for me. I know it works for a lot of people, but for me, it didn't work. Um, you know, I did like LDN for a while. Like you try everything. Um, but ultimately when I started UVLRX is when I started being able to come off Pindalol, which was a beta blocker I was on for POTS. And um, I started having energy. I was able to walk. I remember there's like a mall in LA called the Grove and I went with a friend and I remember walking from the parking lot to the end of the mall. And I was like, Oh my God, like just to be able to do that was like insane. And that was pretty quickly, shortly after you started the UVLRX. I did. I think I did a few sessions and then I started to feel it because the first, the first session I actually did in Rhinebeck, New York, the first ever session I did in Rhinebeck, New York. And I walked to the parking lot. I was with my dad and I'm like, we got to go back in. We have to, we have to go back in. And he's like, what? And I'm like, my, I was having, I was herxing like immediately. I had really bad chest pain. And I, and, and so I went in and my, you know, my dad's like walking back and forth pacing. And I just remember Dr. Bach putting his hand on my dad being like, she's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. And I was, we waited for a few hours. I, the pain passed and then I did it out in LA. And like, after a few sessions, I was getting better. It was crazy. I mean, it, it was like the one thing that I was like, Whoa, so your, se- your second and subsequent sessions were in LA, but your first session in New York, you had a severe Herx reaction to. Yeah, I had a really bad, yeah. And, and just to back up a second, so you mentioned you did LDN as well. So for the low-dose naltrexone, which is supposed to, I think, really kind of regulate or reboot your immune system, did that have any benefit for you in your healing journey? Mm-mm, no, and it didn't work for me. And you mentioned that you were doing glutathione pushes, I think, with your, your, other, your, your second line litter doctor that you were kind of working with in parallel with Dr. Bach, did the glutathione pushes help you in any way? Did you feel any sort of symptom relief from glutathione? I loved glutathione. It's such like a weird thing to say. I'm like, I loved gluta, but like, I thought the glutathione pushes always kind of gave me like a little extra boost. Whereas like, I know one of my friends is like, it's like saline, like it doesn't do anything. I'm like, but for me it did. 
you know, I glutathione worked for me, whereas like, um, a Myers drip would burn my arm, you know, and they, I like, I hated those. So, but I think glutathione is far more than just a saline drip. It's, it's a, it's a very potent antioxidant, which helps your body respond or sort of stop these, these cytokine storms, which are common with Lyme disease. And I think that's probably why you felt relief with glutathione. I did. I mean, I think she was just making the comparison that we were always on saline drips because of POTS. And so for her, it never did anything. But for me, I love such a weird thing to say. I'm like, I loved getting glutathione pushes. You're not alone with that. I mean, this was IV glutathione pushes, correct? You were going getting IV. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So the IV was helpful. What what else did you do? I'm just kind of backtracking, but you know, behind, before and behind the UVLRX, was there anything else you did that either worked or didn't work before you got to Dr. Bach with your second Lyme litter doctor? Well, ironically, I was on Byron White's and I was getting really sick. I ended up being in the hospital. And this is why I say, make sure you understand your records, um, really understand the blood test, like your CD five sevens, your thyroid, all those things, understand what they mean. Like I started researching that all the stuff. So I was in the hospital. I felt really weird and weak. Um, and the doctor released me and handed me my blood work. And I looked at my white blood cell count and it was at a 1.9. And I said, this is really low. Like, how would I know that? I know what my blood count is supposed the range it's supposed to be in off the top of my head. And I'm like, this is really low. And he goes, if it was a 1.8, we would have had to make you stay. He's like, but I can't. I'm like, I mean, that's crazy. So I called the house doctor because he's the com- the most calm person ever. And I was like, you know, what do I do? And he's like, I think it's time for you to see an oncologist. So I went to an oncologist. I come with my notebook of spreadsheets and my white blood cell. And he asks, he has me take out everything that I'm on. He's the first thing he said was, this is a lot of work. He's like, you, you don't need to do this much work, you know? And I was like, like in my head, I'm like, no, I do. You do. But, yeah. And he was like, this is, this is, and my dad was like, so proud. He's like, isn't it beautiful? I mean, it's like a spreadsheet and color coded and all that stuff. So, um, he said, stop taking those herbal medications. I stopped taking the herbal medications. My white blood cell count started to rise again. Um, and when I mentioned that to that Lyme doctor, he was so upset. He was so upset that I would stop. He, he never had this before, blah, blah, blah. And that's when I stopped ultimately seeing him because it was just like, I'm, t- I'm telling you this, this happened. This isn't working. Um, but- I'm sorry. I just want to connect to that. So the, so the second Lyme doctor that you saw before and sort of in parallel with Dr. Bach is the one who put you on the Byron white protocol, which is an herbal protocol, correct? And th- those herbs are what caused your white blood count to be so low then an oncologist told you to stop the Byron White protocol, which got your white blood count better, which upset your second Lyme doctor. And then you basically stopped seeing him because you realized he wasn't helping. Is that, is that correct? Right. I think it was more of like an ego thing, you know, like he just didn't want to hear that somebody else was recommending stuff. So I was on UVLRX and then I ended up um, at the same time, I was starting to feel better. I went to a kinesiologist, like a muscle tester, and I started taking more supplements that was helping. And then Dr. Bach um, put me on not Byron White's, but Abart and Abab, again, another herbals. I, I reacted better to those than the, the other herbals that I was on. And we were apprehensive. So we started really slow. And, you know, that's what Dr. Bach, he understands my sensitivities and things like that. So it was never like, you have to get to 20 drops. You have to get to 15, you know, where you read things about it. People take 15 drops in the morning, 15 drops at night. Like I never did that. You know, I, I did it really slow that helped immensely. Um, 
the supplements helped immensely, like when you're muscle testing. Um, and then I ended up what really kind of, um, plateaued me was, I mean, get me through my plateau. I went to see a healer, an energy healer. And that helped me with, um, that helped me with all of like the, it's almost like I, I actually had this conversation yesterday. My friend said, you shouldn't use the word PTSD. Like it's so military, like it's really for them, you know? And I said, I think you could have trauma in your life and have PTSD. I mean, like, and so I, after going through this experience, not trusting doctors, having the stress of like going to other doctors, I needed somebody to talk to, to kind of work through that. And that was my healer, you know, like kind of getting past these fears helped me kind of release some of this stress that comes with Lyme disease. And I think there is a lot of PTSD um, with this disease. You know, I just had a incident in New York because I only get sick in New York um, where um, I had a doctor roll his eyes at me. Then we went to a different doctor and like, you know, there's all this like stuff. And my dad was like, how do you do this? And I'm like, you know, I've been here before, so it's fine. But all of that stress of trying to get an answer or trying to get a doctor's attention to say, something is wrong, I need you to look at this, is, is severely traumatizing and triggering for me. So for sure, PTSD is very common in chronic Lyme, and it's not talked about enough where the final component generally we see that people get before getting into remission is some sort of therapy or brain rewiring, whether it's EMDR or Gupta or DNRS or energy healing. And that's usually the final piece we see in our guests that when they, when they get that therapy after treating the Lyme, they then enter remission. So that's, you're, you're not uncommon in that regard. But I do want to focus on, because we do, get, we do get from a lot of people, we mentioned the word energy healer and people roll their eyes, right? Because it just sounds so woo-woo. But talk to us about what an energy healer really did for you to help you heal. It sounds like it was so much more than just this, this you know, I'm going to read your aura and tell you what you need. It was more of a, of a talk therapy as well, it sounds like. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was really skeptical. Again, I'm a New Yorker. I'm like, I'm not going to yoga. I'm not going to meditate. Like that's a waste of my time. Like none of that. But I, I mean, and also I've tried all those things. I've worn the weird helmets and attached my earlobes with like buzzing. And like, you know, you do all these like weird things. Like I've earthed, I've essential oiled, I've done it all. Right. Like, so you, you try everything, but this was, um, a friend of mine. I was, had lost his sister and he was like, it really helped me like cope with it. You know, I think you should go, you know, like whatever. And I'm like, nah. like uh, at that point you try anything, anything. So I went and, um, you know, you lay on a table and he has like his hands under your like neck and back. And I'm like, like, do I close my eyes? Do I open my, I mean, like everything about it was weird. And he's asking me these questions and, you know, he, I laid there for like an hour and like, he's like basically, I'm like, I don't really know what to do. And then we had a talk after and he was asking me about patterns and fear and this and that. And then all of a sudden I have like an enormous amount of emotion coming out of me. Right. And I'm like, whoa, like what happened here? So I asked him finally, and I now I've seen him for three years. I'm actually seeing him today. I'm like, what do you do? Like, what do you do? Like, and he said, it's basically, I don't meditate. I don't do yoga. I can't sit still. I'm a type A personality. My mind is always going, going, going. And it's the one hour of the week where he basically puts me into like a meditative state. I'm not sleeping. I wake up really fast from whatever he's doing. And it's like the one hour of the week where I'm just completely calm. And then we talk 
And so, you know, I've seen therapists because when you are initially sick, they tell you to go see therapists and they tell you, you have anxiety problems and they tell you like, you know, maybe you're depressed. I'm like, I feel like I'm great. But, um, so I went to see therapists, like in the early stages of Lyme, I always felt like I was being judged. I always felt like he was also not believing that I had Lyme, that it was more like there was something else deeper going in on that. Whereas when I talked to my healer, it's positivity. It's he's on my side. He's like rooting for me. And I think ultimately when somebody hears you and is cheerleading for you and explains things in a different light, it helps. I always talk about something that he says that really, um, helps me. And I love this analogy. So we were talking about, um, kids, like, you know, I said, I'm like, you know, it's kind of scary. Like I I might not be able to have kids at this point, like between Lyme disease and being sick and like being told I can't get, um, in vitro because of my, my body's sucks, you know, now, um, you know, I think I've made peace with it, but like, I can't, sometimes I can't believe it. Like I always thought like I would be a mom, you know? And he said to me, imagine, imagine fear was a person. He's like, imagine fear was an actual person and you were you, and you're talking to fear. And that person came up to you and you're a New Yorker and you have your opinions and like, you, you know, you talk your stuff. And that person comes up to you and is like, you know what? You're never going to have kids. What would you say to them? And I would be like, fuck you. And he goes, exactly. So why are you letting fear run your life? And I love that analogy because it's so true. We, we have all this fear that we think about like, oh my God, what if I'm having a flare? Am I sick again? Is it getting worse? Like, da, 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 da. like you know, I had this issue in New York where I had an, a ruptured cyst and it, I was in so much pain and it's, it's twofold. Like on one hand, I'm like, you've been here before, calm down. You've been here before you have had gone through this pain. And on the other hand, you're like, shit, I need to get this checked out. But like that fear, that anxiety that would come with Lyme has subsided. Whereas if I had this pain four years ago, I would have had a panic attack. I would have been in the hospital stat. Like, this is more like you have pain, do what you can to address it and go through the motions. And so that's what he's helped me with. And I love it. Like that fear analysis or that fear analogy is just brilliant. I have to say that really was probably the best analogy you've heard. So, but to, 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 be able to heal. You mentioned to be able to get over that fear. I think it's a combination of two things, right? Because the fear and the anxiety is a byproduct or a symptom of the Lyme disease. And it's also something you develop from being sick as well. So do you think that you, you were able to overcome that fear because of treating the Lyme through all of your various protocols that you did and a combination of healing emotionally and healing the trauma and the PTSD with your energy healer? Do you think both of those parts were integral in being able to overcome your fear? Yes. I, I, 100%. I think, like I said, I agree with both of those things. Like, yes, they both have helped. I also think that like, you know, I've been blessed. Like I said, I, I have a really positive person in my life. That's my father. And one of the things that he says all the time is look how far you've come. We get into these holes in Lyme disease because like you think you've made like a thousand steps forward and then you have a flare, you have a ruptured cyst, you have something that like, it blows your mind because you feel like you're doing well. And then you are like sidetracked and you could get, you could go down that path of I'm back where I started, or you could go down that path and say, okay, we're going to take one day at a time, but look how far I've come. I've, I've been through the ringer and I can go through the ringer again because I've been here. 
And I look at Lyme people and when they say Lyme warriors, it's so true because we're so strong mentally and physically. A lot of people I know could not do what half of my Lyme friends can do, you know? And it's like, I, I think there's strength and support. And I think there's, you know, there's like little things. Like I, I started a business and I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I didn't go to school for business. I started a soup business and it, it kind of got my focus away from Lyme disease. And I look how far I've come with that. And I always hear my dad say, look how far you've come. And that applies to so many things. And so for me, like that positive, that positive thing in my life, which is my soup business, like which came out of Lyme disease makes all of that shit like great. I'm glad I went through it because now I could face fear and say, yeah, like it's going to be okay. Like I could take this day by day, four or five years ago, I would never have been able to say that. I'd be like, Oh my God, it's the end of the world. You know? So I think it all helps, but I do think, I think the energy healer helps, but I think there's such a um, thing to have like a cheerleader in your life is so important. So Rich is certainly going to get there shortly with you about your, your transformation and your business and how your business is helping other people in the Lyme community, which is amazing. But I just want to recap with you a little bit and kind of summarize here before I hand it back over to Rich. So if you had to look back at your journey, you've done a lot. You've done a lot, a lot of different things to get into remission, which, which is for our listeners, you are in remission today, which is awesome. You're such an inspirational story. What would you say is the top three things that helped you recover from Lyme disease? Do you think it was the UVLRX and it was the A. Barton A and A. Bab herbs in combination with the energy healing? Were those three things probably your top, um, you know, healing modalities? I do. I mean, I do think that, I mean, looking back, yes, but it's really hard to tell because, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, like everything that you've tried kind of, kind of helps along the way. So even though like doxy, I stopped taking doxy, but I was on it for like eight months, like that could have helped me get better to a certain degree. So I think it, I, I can never say to somebody, this is exactly what worked for me because you try so many things and each thing might've helped a little bit. Yeah. I know. I know that's a terrible. No, answer. that that's, that's know. a, that's a great answer. So just give us an idea for our listeners, because we have some people that are literally bed bound. And I, I, I've been there, you know, where, where people are, are desperate and think they can't get better. Give us an idea of where you are at your worst. And what you're doing now today, symptom-free and remission to give our, our listeners some inspiration and hope that they can get better. I, at my worst, I was having trouble walking and I was in excruciating pain. I had this uh, lower right quadrant pain that sent me to the hospital, I think 11 times in one year and nobody could figure it out. Um, I even had surgery. It was like the worst decision I made, but at my worst, I was in that pain and I was having trouble walking. And I was really emaciated and the tremor, the neurological stuff is the scariest stuff for me. Like the tremors and the, like not being able, not being able to like, you know, I'm a writer. Like, so it's really hard for me to like, not be able to like form words and things like that. So I think at my worst, I always tried to like get out of bed and things like that. I was never like bedridden, but I know that it's like crazy. I know it collapsed a lot. Um, that was kind of, that was kind of the worst part of it. And, and then having to ask for help. Like I finally had a, like, I have finally collapsed on my kitchen floor back here. And, um, my mom by chance called and was like, hi, what's going on? I'm like, I think you need to fly out to California, you know? So that was my worst. And my mom flew out here for a few weeks and 
no. And she helped feed me and helped me kind of get better. But like, yeah, I think it's pain. I think it's pain that you, it's undescribable to some people. And like, like, and then you, you pretend that it's not there and it's, it's fatigue that you don't, you can't even explain either. Like where you're so tired that you, you can't open your eyes. I mean, it's like your eyes are so heavy that it's like, you don't understand why that's happening. I don't know. And then, and, and the pots is scary. The pots is, I don't know. It all sucked. It all really sucked. You know, there's just so much. I'm like, I could name a thousand things. Like you have just digestive issues that you're like, what's going on with my stomach. You have pain. That's insane. in your legs, like I couldn't sleep because I had leg pain. Like I, you know, when you're little, you have growing pains, like that's, it felt like that, but it felt like, oh my God, my, my legs would be on fire. Oh God. I'm like thinking, I, I think I started to block it out. Now that we're talking about it, I'm like, shit, like, I don't want to remember any of that stuff, but it was all bad. It was all well, bad. Well, I want to pivot you away from that now, Tracy. And let's talk about the beauty of Lyme disease and what you learned about yourself that you believe you would not have understood about yourself had you not gone through the suffering that Lyme disease has presented to you. I think that, you know, I always thought like I was a strong, like, even when I was diagnosed, I was like, well, I'm strong. I, you know, I'm fit and I'm like healthy. And like, you always, I always thought that about myself, but I don't know if I believed it until now, you know what I mean? You think it, but like you, like, I think, I mean, you have like those insecurities, but now I believe it. And I feel like I am proud of myself for not giving up. Um, you know, part of that is because I wanted to feel good for my parents who literally wanted me to feel good. And I remember my nephew saying to me, like, I, in the thick of it, he said, you know, Aunt Tracy, you sleep all the time. And that was like, I'm done. Like, I don't, that I do not want my nephews to remember me like that. Like, I don't want them to think of me like that. And so once I started, like, it's almost like you're acting like you're, you know, ironically, cause I wanted to be an actress, like you're doing your best acting. And so I'm proud of myself, not for like pretending the pain isn't there, but for normalizing the fact that I could feel like I have a normal day and I could go through my day and accomplish the things that I do. I talk about this a lot. Um, I work and a lot of what I do is manual. I pack boxes, I'm cooking, I'm on my feet all day, all that stuff. And the truth of the matter is a lot of the time I'm in pain, you know, but I push through because I don't want to stop and I don't want to be back on my couch and I don't ever want to be there again. So I am proud of myself for that. Cause I didn't think I was going to come out of it. And I, again, it's like those little things that you hear all the time is like, look how far you've come and look how far you can go, you know? So <clears throat> I, I do believe that, but yeah, I think there's so much strength to our community. I really do. So talk to us about the pivot that you've made professionally and whether or not you would have made that pivot had you not gone through this portion of your journey. I would, I definitely wouldn't know. That's for sure. I mean, I always, I was, I still love TV. I still work in TV, but <clears throat> I never thought I was going to own a soup shop of all things. I love to cook. That was always, I love dinner parties. Dinner parties stopped for me when I got sick, you know, like that was, nobody came around. I wasn't cooking for anyone. You change your diet. That was one thing I was really stubborn about. They, um, they kept saying, you need to change your diet. I was like, no, I'm not doing it. Like I'm going to eat cheese. I'm going to do this, blah, blah. And then finally you're so ill that you're like, okay, 
I'm going to do this. And I changed my diet and, um, I really didn't know how to eat. And, um, I always, it's not like I knew how to cook. So when I was really sick, when my mom flew out here, she's like, you need stuff to be on set. And for what I do, you five minute breaks, you five minute breaks, to either pee or eat. Like literally like that's all you have. And then you have to run back to your booth. So we wanted to come up with things that like I could make in big batches freeze and have so that I wasn't not eating. Cause I got into the habit of just, it's easier for me not to eat. Cause I didn't want to be on my feet or whatever. And soup was the easiest thing to do. And so I started cooking it. And one of my friends who was going through postpartum at the time, and we watched bachelorette together would come over, like watch with me. Like if I was having a sick day or whatever, and I would make my soup and she would have some, and she was trying to lose weight. So she was like, you know, can you make me a whole vat of it or whatever? And I was like, sure. And, um, she started a company. So she started an accountability program for, uh, for people who wanted to kind of change their lifestyles. And so I randomly got a phone call from a girl and was like, Hey, I'm Lily. Can I have seven soups? I'm like, what? And so I started cooking out of my house and it was like a hobby and it was fun. And it actually like was almost a way to refocus out of Lyme disease because we're so immersed in it. Even when we're starting to feel better, you're so worried you're going to go back to a bad place. So you're literally like, it it kind of reshape, like reshape my focus from, you know, taking down all those notes and spreadsheets and stuff to like, all right, I'm just going to go cook in my kitchen. And it kind of just took off and it was, it was a blessing in disguise. So talk to us about how it's going and, um, and how much you're enjoying this new uh, career or this new element of your career. It's great. I mean, it's weird. So I was working in TV and cooking at the same time. So up until the pandemic, I was working on a show called One Day at a Time. And I loved it because it's about a Cuban family and my, I'm Cuban. And like, so I was like, and then it got canceled during the pandemic, which was like, oh, so frustrating. But my business, because everybody was ordering food. We stayed open and, um, it's just been, it's like, you know, to have your own hours and not have to work 14 hours a day. Like if I choose to work 14 hours a day, I I get to choose to do that. Like, I don't have to like, I don't have to do it, you know? Like, so that's really lovely about it. I love talking to people. A lot of what I love is people coming in who are chronically ill and have the food sensitivities that I do and like talking to people about that. And that has been, it, 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 it's just like such a great thing. Like you just feel like, oh, this is the community that I wanted to serve. And, and that's what I love about. We have clients who have Lyme disease or with cancer who have really restricted diets. And I'm like, okay, like, what can I make? Like, what kind of soup can I make? that could help them. And that's like kind of why you do it. You know, it's such a, it's, it's gratifying, you know, like I always wanted to direct television and I still do. I love, I have a passion for TV and I love that, but there's so, there's so much affirmation in being able to help somebody knowing that they are going through what you went through. I was put on liquid diets. I would say three times I was put on liquid diets and there was like one soup company and they would, it was like in a bottle. Like it was like, I don't want to drink soup from a bottle. Like I want it in a bowl and I don't want it to be just liquid. So, you know, that was like kind of my inspiration behind everything, especially if other people are being put on liquid, like liquid diets. Like I had to drink bone broth for 
I think every morning for like three months. And I now I'm like, if I'm going to drink bone broth, I want it to taste good. And so we roast those bones forever, you know, and make sure that it's yummy, but it's, it's again, it's like so much education. Cause I've never run a business. I, you know, like you learn so much. And I think that Lyme disease also kind of gave me that opportunity to start educating myself again. Like there's nothing you can't do and nothing you can't learn. It's always just asking. And like finding out stuff and finding out information. And I think, you know, when you get into the groove of a career, which I did in TV, you forget there's so many things that you could teach yourself and educate yourself on. And this has been such a learning journey for me. I love it. I really do. So you can learn these things so long as you tell your fears to go after themselves. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And well, you know, my dad says that he's a businessman. He says with business, there's highs and lows. He's like, the highs are the highest, the lows are the lowest. And he's like, but there's nothing better than those highs. And as a business owner, you're always going to have anxiety. I'm like, what? I was like, I don't want to have anxiety. Like, why would you tell me that? And he was like, he's like, I always have it. I'm like, I never looked at my father as somebody who, who ever would have anxiety, but you have these anxieties all the time. I'm like, oh my God, are we making sales? Like, are we doing it? Are people eating it? Do they like it? Like if somebody you know, has a bad review. I'm like, Oh my God, which we generally don't have when somebody tastes the food, we generally have great reviews, but, um, I care a lot about it. And, um, I think the, the Lyme disease, you know, you have so much anxiety that you're able to kind of hone in on it and be like, stay positive because you started this out of a positive place. And that's kind of generally where I always go back to. And the pandemic was tough. Like, you know, like we had to let go of employees. We were cooking all the time. Like, you don't know where you're going to end up. And um, you just have to kind of stay like, you did this for a reason. If it doesn't pan out, it doesn't pan out. But if it does, how amazing is that? And if you could go into it with that attitude, you know, you're kind of like, let's do this. I don't know. Where can our listeners find your soup shop and how can they get in touch with you if they're interested in purchasing uh, soup from you? So we have a little shop in Sherman Oaks on Ventura Boulevard, and we have a website, www.gracefullyfed.com. And you could order online. We ship nationwide. And then locally to California, we do a meal delivery service. And um, I, I my like new thing for the last few months is like, making baked goods that are without refined sugar or gluten or dairy. And I'm like, I'm I'm getting better. I'm very excited about it. I'm not great at like decorating, but I'm very good at like the baked goods part. So I'm very happy about that. Um, so yeah, we do it all. And yeah, and I'm really, I love my little shop in Sherman Oaks. It's really cute, but the, we do ship all over the country and that has been great because, you know, I think on the East coast, people are more soup lovers than, you know, I guess sometimes here in the warm weather, but yeah. So Tracy, I'm going to ask you one final question. If your favorite customer came walking into your soup shop in Sherman Oaks uh, and they had a tick biting them on their arm, what would you recommend that they do so they wouldn't have to go on a Lyme disease journey? (sighs) Well, one, I would make sure that the tick was removed properly. I think there's a lot of misinformation about how to remove a tick. That's one. Two, I would make sure that they ziplocked it, put it in a bag and sent it away so that we knew if it was carrying, you know, infections. And three, I mean, me personally, and I'm not a doctor and I like, don't like to 
you know, make this call, but I would, I would go on doxy right away. Like I would make sure I would get like a two week thing of doxy so that you're not waiting for the tick to get back. You're not waiting to that report. Like my dad got bit by a tick. He was golfing. I'm like, dad, go to the doctor, get doxy right now. You know, like that is my thing um, for that. You know, you don't want to go through that. I don't wish it upon anybody. So, you know, still people will say, oh yeah, you know, you just pour alcohol on it. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, so it's like so upsetting. So I would make sure those were the initial things, but I would also make sure that they're aware that the longer you wait, the more that there's room for you to get sick. And so don't wait. I, I think that, I think people don't realize that they think, well, I think there's also misinformation about that, that it takes a while for you to be infected with Lyme disease. It takes like a few minutes. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say, you know? And then I would say, call me after you go to the doctor because I want to make sure they did it right. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Tracy Weintraub. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Tracy Weintraub, please visit our Instagram page at Gracefully Fed. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Thick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Thick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community of listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.